0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
2: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you on SiriusXM. We do this every week. Been doing it via Zoom for the last year and three quarters. This is Cade Massey hosting with my buddies, longtime collaborators and faculty colleagues, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. Eric Bradlow is out for maybe the whole day today, an Eric bradlow list show. He'll be back. Don't worry. Some combination of us are here every week. We're glad you're here. We're going to dive right into the COVID world. Unfortunately, it feels, my gosh, even just the last couple of days, like it's really warming up a little bit. Even since we jumped on here and started talking with each other this afternoon, this is Tuesday afternoon, we've had news that Cornell shut their campus just up uh, you know half got to go up pennsylvania and into new york but you'll get to cornell pretty quickly they've shut their campus it's something like 500 positive cases penn remarkably has been able to keep the same positivity rate supposedly at least the ones in the tests for since the beginning of school since the beginning of the semester so we're, we're managing it somehow but odd uh what's your what what's your reaction to Ithaca what's your reaction anything else going on what's your reaction Shane to what we're hearing out of Europe Omicron what's on your mind guys
3: well I mean I guess I guess you know it is uh, sorry I I, I guess it's hard to uh um you know I there is a lot of kind of negative news right now and it's been you know stressful to sort of see about uh, see some of these things uh rising up in the news but uh, one thing that's worth kind of perspective that I think is actually a, a positive thing is uh um that You know, if you just look a year back, you know, even with all these rising case counts and stuff like that, we're half the case count that we were from a year ago. You know, so if you kind of take the long view.
2: Well, a year ago, what vaccines
3: have gotten us.
2: True, 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 Shane. But let's keep in mind that a year ago we were on one of the steepest climbs of the whole pandemic.
3: Well, yes. No, but, but I think that's the right comparison because. The same time there is a seasonality. Huge seasonality to this and how, yeah. you know, I mean, I think that's more intelligent than trying to compare to what was things were going on in September or in June. Okay, that's right. Fair. So, yeah. so I mean, you know, factoring in the seasonality, you know, we're half the kind of case count that we were a year
2: ago. Well, the bad side of that is the cumulative deaths we're seeing in the US are, are just staggering. So we're, I think we're right at 800,000 now. and something like i think 1% of all us adults over 65 years old have died of covid i mean it's just it's stunning some of some of these cumulative numbers so we have to hold both of these truths at the same time um in some respects things were a lot better certainly with the vaccine yeah I no imagine the cumulative just...
3: numbers if not for the vaccines
2: right right well i'm i'm troubled by the omicron results we're hearing out of Places in Europe. So, Denmark is saying that it's spreading like much more rapidly than uh, Delta. They're they've been testing regularly from the beginning, so they're able to see these things a little bit earlier. Norway is saying the same things. So, it's beginning to the evidence that it spreads more rapidly than Delta seems to be compiling. Of course, we don't yet know about the severity, whether we're going to see a, a, a similar or a weaker rise in hospitalization but you know as they say if the if it's twice as likely to spread and half as likely to produce hospitalizations then it's a wash but that's still you know it has to be half as likely in order to
3: it's more to than a wash washed. it's actually a, a huge advantage we would want so, we would want Omicron, an Omicron like that conditional on it again reducing the number of us but you know you something that spreads incredibly rapidly but is much less you know has much less health consequences is the, is the kind of variant we could all cheer for
2: well, a couple of things. We, we, you're talking about because it would, it would produce immunization in the population, but the load on the hospitals would be the same. So you've still got those constraints in various areas. I mean, we have places in the United States that are running out of hospital beds as is.
3: Yes. No, that's right. That's I, 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 Again, it's a kind of variant you cheer for, I think in a, a long, I'm thinking a lot look a longer term view as how right. the virus population kind of would evolve, right? Because right, you know, right. There is again an upper cap in transmission, which is you know, if it goes across, you know, through the whole population through vulnerable populations. Yeah.
2: But yeah. again, it's like, but it's back now. We're back to flattening the curve. Do we have the hospitalization capacity, the hospital capacity to to handle that as it blows up? And it depends on exactly this ratio of how much more transmissible it is. And how much less severe it is because again there are there are mm-hmm. corners even just in lancaster pa i saw the headline in the newspaper in the past week the lancaster pa hospital beds are full
3: yeah
0: and it Can was I just juxtap- it out, was ju- by the way Guys, go ahead you t- again control group hospital beds run out all the time 100 percent hospital capacity is something that is achieved regularly you got it, and it's a big country and it's a big state. So you really have to be talking about something more general than a single spot. They have to be saying things like, we can't handle the number of COVID cases coming in, or something a little bit stronger than just a hospital, 100% hospita- hospital beds are full. I just spoke on Friday to someone at, at HUP, there were 11 cases. So um, whether a local place has a breakout or something in you know, an institution, let's be careful with this. Um, there definitely is rising cases all over the Northeast. Um, in other parts of the country as well. Places like the South are still seeing pretty very, are still quite quiet. Um, when you talk about England, England's going crazy with cases, but there's still Delta. Um, and they expect that, that Omicron B.1.1.529, for those of who you who know, um, uh, is, uh, is going to take over. But Delta is super fast as it is. And we're clearly seeing an outbreak of Delta in most parts of the world um it's not so people are making the link that it's omicron it's not it's still mostly delta going on and most and most of the world except for some places where it's starting to to uh, grow and i and i think they are expecting it to eventually take over because i think it does spread much more rapidly than even delta which was much more rapidly than the earlier versions of it people are are getting covid everywhere particularly uh young people who are you know out and about and um uh, just to follow up with one of the things that, that Jane said, I actually think this has a great silver lining, which is by you, we got to get natural immunity much more widespread, and the best place to do it among is among the younger population that's vaccinated. There's such there's, I mean, look, I've been looking widely at this. If you look at at New York City, where cases are rocket shipping right now, just got literally while we're sitting here in this in this recording session, my my sister my sister my daughter's roommate just tested positive. Um, there's lots and lots of COVID going around. One of my students, three of them have just have just texted me, um, read past COVID, we're seeing lots of it going around. There's almost none of these will have anything other than a very, very mild illness. And there has great benefits potentially for society to get a much more wide base of natural immunity, something that we've really avoided assiduously for this entire time. And might we should really ask the question, is that our eventual necessary path out. And we've talked about it on and off. um, And others have talked about it. Others have just missed it. Is that something have you guys thought about? Do you think it might be the only way out of this thing eventually is broad-based natural immunity? And if you think about it, one place that has the highest amount of natural immunity, and certainly citywide, is New York City. And if you just flick on their their website, as I did earlier today, they're still averaging about 5 to 10 deaths a day out of its ten million city it's still that's a minuscule number and by the way, when we say deaths it's deaths with or from covid it's it's not distinguished on the cdc website um so uh, that's something well, for so us Adi, that, i
3: mean
2: the the real quickly that when we used to talk about this question early on, I think I certainly thought of immunity as binary you know you either had it or you didn't and if you got it, it was you know infinitely lasting and we've learned that that's neither of those assumptions is true and so whenever we say this is the way out so can we ever get enough of it fast enough that that's actually true or is it always going to be degrading and so there's always going to be vulnerabilities in various pockets of the population
0: well the goal is to make it the flu Ovid or some some new you know some something that's endemic it's seasonal it's rips in rips out just like the flu does by the way the flu kills yeah the, i mean you, I, again there, the, the,
3: the, the idea of uh, the population being naturally immune to the flu i mean that's not how we kind of think about it or that's certainly oh, not, not, not how no, we yes manage and it. no
0: yes and no we, we do have we all have by the time we're adults have lots of immunity to flu we don't die of it i mean this is fundamental i mean flu it comes You're out saying well, mo- we also know people, how to most people it. don't die of it that's right the vast majority of the people except yeah. for an occasional and again just like covid you really have to have severe kind of issues in order to die of you have to have um have these issues to die of it and that's where we want to happen. and by the way that's
3: and that's kind of how i've been thinking about this is cuz i don't i don't think you know i don't i don't think covid's going away and i don't i think it's always going to be kind of a thing but you know one thing that we have essentially monotonically improved upon is how well we treat it yeah. You know, and, and and I mean, like the thing that gives, you know, both in terms of like, you know, less, less, less kind of cases turn into hospitalization. And this is really what we were really. That's why we had to flatten the curve so much the first time through is we had no way of treating COVID the first time through. Or, we didn't or know very did little, either. very rudimentary ways. We had no idea We hadn't learned yet what was effective versus not. Now we have monoclonal antibodies. We have pills coming down the pike that mm-hmm. actually are very effective. Sounds like.
0: But just to put it in perspective, there's 30 million cases of flu every year in the United States. 30 million. This is not so. Getting an outbreak at of uh, just every season of millions of cases of COVID in the United States shouldn't cause panic. And that's really what I I want to just put on the table here, and and that is what I'm I feel like in certain parts of the country we continue to see this, and we can see this this. uh, kind of retreat into our, into society, which doesn't affect us individually all that much here. I'm finding actually quite honestly, lots of my job is done even better on on virtually than it is in person. Um, But for many people in society, it's terribly destructive. And I mean, you, we mentioned this earlier, Cornell is closing. Well, it's closing two days before. Yeah. I was going to say shutting down the Uh, campus two days before it would have been shut down anyway. And, uh, but on the other hand, um, this kind of sentiment is 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 re, it's very regional, and it is and is I think something we should be talking about more directly.
2: So, Adi, where does that leave you? On Philadelphia announced today that I think at the top of the beginning of the year they're go, they're moving to a vaccine required for restaurants. Restaurants can't serve you without asking for your vaccines. Um, they're going to in the early periods allow proof of negative test, but that's only for the early couple of weeks. And then they're going to this vaccine and it applies to all kinds of venues, bars, stadiums. So is this prudent, Audie, or is this what you would consider too much of a retreat?
0: Well, I, I would say it's not. I would, I would disagree with doing this. Particularly, first of all, not every stadium located Cal is the same. Citizens Bank Park is outside.
2: Um, I think, I mean, in, indoors, as I believe. Okay, but a lot so- of those, as you know, a lot of those vendors serve food in, in the inside parts of stadiums.
3: David yeah. Citizens Bank Park is a weird mix of indoor and outdoor, right? So yeah, yeah.
2: the reason why I'm against it
3: is, is it's, it's,
0: it's, it's it is, first of all, vaccination after several months, whether it's two months or six months, has remarkably reduced ability to protect against transmission. What we need to be selling the public on is the, des- the need to get vaccinated to protect yourself from serious illness. And it is very effective and actually would love to have better data on this. We talked about this last week. I think it also protects not only from serious illness, but serious long-term illness. Um, I've done, I know at this point, you know, countless people who've had COVID, most breakthrough that mostly, most people after their vaccination and, and this is corroborated by data that, that they tend to be shorter periods of illness, um, but the long term effects of COVID, most specifically loss of taste or smell, is was seemed to be far more commonplace, common among the pre-vaccinated COVID um, sufferers. Are we, are, we see, know, are we
2: seeing evidence? We're seeing evidence? No, of
0: that unfortunately, all I have is anecdote. And I'm just okay. waiting for the first paper to say yay or nay on that. Yeah. Um, and, and so what I'm, I'm fixating on the I, I can't tell you, we've all, we all are, are, are converted. It's not, it's the data is obvious. Vaccination is extraordinarily useful. Everybody should take it, at least everybody who's an adult and even young adults. But the idea is that the the idea that someone, that that you're, that things are improved in terms of the community transmission, they might be a little bit. I mean, this is something that we can discuss, but the data is pretty clear that after months, that amount is 30 to 40% improved. It's not 95%. Um, it's not zero, but it's somewhere in that middle. And it's not enough for me to argue that it's worth all the costs of checking vi- vaccines. You know Do you know how many, how difficult it would be to get into a baseball game? No, it's and incredible to show your vaccines. Yeah,
2: it's incredible. And, um, and
0: by the way, you, you, you,
2: you mentioned that's an interesting suggestion, interesting claim, a good point to discuss, but early on, you mentioned this thing about vaccines lose their effectiveness. And so, In some sense, transmission. Well, no, no, just just in terms of of being of being susceptible. Right. Right. So you mean, yeah, yeah. You mean you mean they don't lose their effectiveness in terms of severity. Yeah. But um, let's just stay with that. We talked last week about it'd be nice to have kind of a equivalence. So right after you've received your second shot, you've got kind of maximum immunity and then it decays over time. And then you get your booster to get back up to maximum immunity. It'd be nice to kind of know at any given time, whether I'm at like 1.0, 0.9, 0.5, 0.4. And in that case, I mean, the, what you're saying is it's kind of silly to give people equal credit for coming in a restaurant if they were a year away from being double vax versus the person that just got boosted yesterday. I guess what I'm also saying is that what is what are we trying to accomplish with this? Process? No, I get that. I, well, get I, that and I mean, I, I
3: think it's mostly I mean. I think it's mostly theater, but like I, th- I think, I think there is there's, there's, more there's, than theater. It's it is well, absolutely mostly theater. It's mostly theater, but I mean, it's sort of like uh, if I had so to y'all guess, really
2: y'all really think that like right you're you think is it theater or is it let's draw a distinction between even even if you don't agree these decision makers could still be well intended and believe no 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 I, I was
3: about to say it, it's it's uh, it's theater in the sense that like the specific policy that specific policy i i for the reasons audi point out i don't think is like you know it's not particularly efficient or certainly optimally kind of effective at doing what we want to do but i think there's two kind of well-intentioned things that are, are that that probably are are in play here a it is you know they have to do something. That's the theater part. They, they know they have to respond somehow policy-wise to rising cases. And this is certainly a, a, a compromise that's less draconian than lockdown, mm-hmm. which I don't think we have the political or economic will for. Mm-hmm. And the other intention that's clearly in behind is to c- continue to incentivize strongly people getting vaccinated. Yeah, there is Yeah, that.
0: but see, the problem with that is that that has, has the form of coercion to it which I'm not. It always has. It says.
3: Yes. I know
0: that. I don't think that's been effective. So I'm going to, I'll turn to our experts, you know, Cade, you're much better uh, uh, um, knowledge about, about persuasion than, than I am. But what I've read is, and I've talked to people, is that if we had directly tried to appeal to pe- people's sense that this will, this is a good thing for you personally to do because of your own health, that, if, that by putting on, by putting on government, we, we tapped into a strong political direction that overcame people's senses and that this is and that there are people who are who are are going to continue to hold fast against vaccinating because they feel it is a way to stand up to to oppression oppressive government um and that i think that if we just backed off and and said you should vaccinate for yourself you don't want to do it i mean I, it doesn't hurt anyone i mean this is something that we have got to change this notion that you're not being vaccinated. Is, is damaging to other people. It, it, we thought that was true in the beginning, and that's one of these foundational beliefs that has absolutely eroded. We don't know where it, it's eroded to, somewhere down that, that, that continuum, but it is not what we thought it was in the beginning, where in the beginning, after the trials, no one got COVID, in the vac- basically nobody got COVID in the in the in the treatment arm and there were 178 cases or so or something like that in the control arm we thought this was done remember remember we
3: were- well i mean we didn't know <laughs> but i mean I, I think it's also i i i would i would hesitate to typecast too much i think there's a huge heterogeneity uh, heterogeneity again another running theme of this yes. whole well, so the thing there's a huge heterogeneity i think in kind of the po- why and the population of people that aren't are still aren't getting vaccinated or are not don't want to get vaccinated. One is you know one is kind of the opposition to government type thing. But I I, mm. I think it, it, it's you don't I I you don't want to typecast too much. I think there are people out there that probably you know would continue to respond to incentives, especially if like their life you know I mean it's, it's another way of kind yeah. of mandating for people in the like serving and entertainment. It's another way of essentially mandating vaccinations for a group of people, and I'm you know, so I, I, I don't think necessarily it would have a non-zero impact as uh if if it is kind of, you know, secondarily yeah. intended as a vaccine kind of encouragement policy.
2: Yeah. I just want to jump on that because Adi asked the persuasion question. I mean, the I'm enough of an economist to believe that the best persuasion is an incentive and these psychological factors are generally secondary. And, um, You know, what what stat have we been kicking around over the last month or so? The percentage of U.S. adults over 65 who are vaccinated and it's almost everybody. And that tells you most of what you need to know, because they are as politically divided as the rest of the country is. And yet when you get in that super vulnerable population, that super vulnerable demographic, all of a sudden the incentives are sufficiently strong to outweigh whatever political identity you have. Oh, Although so, we we'll,
0: we should point out that the discussion we've been having for weeks about that number, CDC has officially changed their website. Yeah, to 95%. yeah New
3: York Times is back down to 95%, which yeah, they, is believable.
0: And, and I'm gonna turn around, I'm gonna actually respond by saying I think that that the, the actual number is probably closer to 90% yeah, rather yeah, than 95%. Yeah, right. But never mind, that's not such a big difference. 99.7 was just so silly. It had to it had to, it was worthy of of some mockery. Uh yeah, so clearly the people most 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 in benefit of a vaccine. Will, uh, are taking it. The real question is, and this is what I'm going to turn to you, is that I think that governments, instead of uh, instead of responding the way you, Shane, said they, they, they're they being forced to respond, to show that they're doing something, they should actually respond by saying that that less needs to be done rather than more, that that this is endemic, that vaccines are our solution to preventing serious illness, to turning this into something that is a modest annoyance rather than a um, a life-threatening event, And and just put it in risk profile. It poses no greater risk than the risks that young, healthy people, or healthy people in general, take every day, and that therefore this is something that the government should help persuade people of to make them go back to their lives. Now, I read an interesting article today in The Atlantic. I don't know if you guys had a chance to read it. It was essentially a report from from Michigan, southwestern Michigan. And the, the, the article talked about how where he lives, there is no COVID. And what I'm what he was essentially was describing is the heterogeneity in the United States with response to how people are behaving mm-hmm. with respect to the virus.
2: And, and I you just don't came mean there's constantly. no COVID. There's no COVID-related behavior change. Exactly.
0: I, mean, I don't mean there's no COVID. There's, he said, in fact, there's as much COVID now as there ever was. There is as much COVID death as there ever was. But there is zero COVID, um, no, even discussion of it. It just says there's no masks. There's no discussion. Uh, people get it. They get over it. There's probably the same amount of vaccination as you'd expect in a place like that, where the old people are vaccinated. Probably a large fraction of the younger people are not. Um, and yet, yet, and, and there's incredible diversity. Switch from Montgomery County, summer, suburb where I am, to Philly, it changes. Go to New York City, it changes. And then go to Boston. I think Boston has got to be the capital of um outdoor mask wearing and all the associate, uh, uh, covariates in the United States. I mean, it's, they still feel like it's, May twenty twenty.
3: and I mean, it, it's a fascinating, I think, psychological thing to sort of like, we, we, at what point will we kind of, ex, you know, kind of accept this as sort of endemic and, and, and maybe, you know, um, like, you know, I I read that article on The Atlantic and I, mm-hmm. I like how he started out. I don't want to come across as flippant. And then he came across <laughs> as flippant for the entirety of that article. Uh, but um, but, you know, when when does it stop being flippant to kind of ignore or, or like at least not prioritize as much? And I just don't think we're there yet right now. I mean, in certain parts of the US where people like it's, it's not as present, but I mean, you know, 1200 people a day or whatever dying still in the United States. I don't think that's the level we'll need to be at for it to suddenly become, I mean, you know, again, if we want to use the flu analogy, you know, kind of the flu analog, maybe once it gets down to flu kind of death levels, but it's, we're, we're certainly well beyond that still. So I think, I think the kind of the, 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 the severe consequence rate is still high enough such that I don't think we're really ready to kind of, do the whole ignore it as an issue. I mean, I think we're going to do this kind of weird compromise, try and power through it, <laughs> you know, whatever we all, strategy. Uh, we, we,
2: also, we also have to be careful and not paint the policy decisions the same across the full two years of it now. Because mm-hmm. I think anybody who could would go back and change the way things were done in the beginning. Because had we, had we not politicized masks and politicized vaccines, we would be in a very different, I think, Well, maybe it's not a given, but I'm pretty sure we'd be in a very different state. Um, so I think the government, even if you buy what Adi is saying, the government's getting it wrong right now, but I, but I mean, government's plural, there's governments at every level. It doesn't mean that you know, the policies that Adi is prescribing now would have been the policies he had prescribed in February, 2020. Actually, Ivy's here. We can ask. Him.
0: Yeah, I know I wouldn't. I'm, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure how, how to go back in time and decide what I would do differently. I don't think it's quite that, that simple, but I can tell you now um, the 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 solution is is get as many people to get vaccinated as possible and simultaneously get the practitioners to learn how to treat this as best as possible at every level so that we can turn this into a disease that is very much like the seasonal flu. Um, yeah. see, and, you know, just you point out a thousand, a, a, thousand deaths, a, but there were a thousand deaths a day in New York City alone in March of 2020.
3: Um, yeah. That's a calamity. Um, a thousand oh, it's, deaths. Oh, and you certainly were not at that. Yeah. I mean, no, no. <laughs> there it was looked, very few people I knew back in like March and April 2020 are like, oh, this is no big deal. We should just ignore <laughs> it. I guess the Swedes tried to, uh, uh, but... <laughs>
2: But um, let me, let's let let's point out that, again, you know, this is an anecdote, but we've been living it this semester. Penn has managed to conduct business pretty much as usual with a couple of basic um, mechanisms to minimize the spread, those being masks and regular testing. But those two basic methods have allowed us, everyone to be on campus, everyone to be in the classroom. I don't think there's a single example yet of classroom spread despite there having been thousands of classes and tens of thousands of students in classes. And I think that speaks to the efficacy of these simple measures that needn't have been politicized. And they, yep. they actually, if you, if, you, if, you, if you make those simple measures more palatable, you actually get back to normal life more quickly. I, I, I mean, I'm going to counter on that one. Um, I
0: did some, did some research on this. First of all, we haven't been looking for classroom transmission. So if you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. Um, we're simply not even asking whether or not when people get COVID, where are they are getting it? I mean, we are looking outside. I thought they,
2: they were, they, they, they were at one point trying to track that down. Were they not? Uh, maybe they,
0: they were. I don't know when, all I can tell you is I had COVID. I'm fairly convinced that it's, I don't know whether it was a classroom. I couldn't say it was, but it's certainly a firm possibility. Other students in my class had COVID. They were sitting in front of me. They were close to me. Um, I don't know
3: where else I I, mean, I, I think I think if, if, if the if classroom ask. transmission had been a substantive thing, it we would have definitely known about it. Okay, but let right? me just I mean, would, let me would, throw would, this we, out. We had, we had like very few places.
0: We had extremely few places for almost the entire semester. The, the screening prevalence was around 0.3%. We had extremely low prevalence and we were a very heavily vaccinated uh, population closer to our immunity stage as well. I was already boosted when I got to campus. Uh, basically. And but, most of our
2: working against that is that working against that is that we're a porous community. And so there's lots of interactions with other communities. And so even though this group is pretty well set up, it's definitely vulnerable to or, or, or
3: just fold the fact that it was super vaccinated into Cade, sort of like the measures that Penn put together Good. to that, that
2: oh, all I'm so,
0: saying is know. I went out and looked for other universities. University of North Carolina, I found South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and Texas. And the reason why I picked those is those all are publicly non-masking schools. Yep. So so that's why I found Um, most people and all four of them have had no outbreaks this entire semester. Um, Very low. They look just like Penn. Um, And so, okay, that's interesting. And so I threw that out and going, they had no breakouts, no masking, and they didn't look like Penn. So we don't have an experiment here. We're not them. We have different different communities. So yep. if you're going to claim that, we, that our, our measures have been effective, you got to have something to compare it to. And we don't have that easy to, to bring out. To,
3: well, to compare and, and again, I mean, I, I, I'll just sort of say, um, our, you, you can say our measures at Penn have been effective. Because, well, I guess, I guess you're arguing counterfactually if we had done absolutely nothing, yeah. including yeah. vaccination. No 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 no, been... no, 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 no,
0: no, 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 no. I, not I saying... mean,
3: because I, I, I could see the point that there's no experiment or anything. We're close to a factorial design where we can point out that specifically masks versus I would, I would, vaccination I would... versus whatever had to do with our, you know. But it, it has been a f- in the aggregate. It's been a it good semester. Been effective.
0: It's been no, no. It's been a good semester. So has many other universities that didn't have the same policies as we had. They're not in the same location. So obviously we can't make direct comparisons. We didn't do an experiment. We weren't going to do an experiment. Wouldn't that have been fun if we had been in charge of designing that one, right?
3: (laughs) But what did that have been? A, a, oh God! A, I'm in the placebo classroom.
1: They're like, the "Placebo." At it would have been like, you know, <laughs> eating,
0: drinking, no mask, you know, again. What I mean, that would have been like. I mean, it would have been. Ch- I mean, charmingly interesting, and we would have gotten a lot of information. But that inf- that that experiment wasn't done. Yeah. So, I would argue that our first hypothesis is the most effective me- measure. Uh, the most best predictive reason for lack of spread here is we just didn't have much COVID during this post-vaccination lull. Um, or actually, and the second thing, explanation would be that we had a lot of vaccines. So those two things in the community were really useful. 100% vaccination rate at Penn with low community prevalence. Um, and then the third thing I would then drive down are the measures that we did to in the classroom. So I would turn around and say, that we, we did a lot of things. There was no eating, there was no drinking, masks had to be on. Other universities, in fact, many of them in places just as cautious as we were, allowed the professors at the very least to take off their masks. And they didn't have any different outcomes that we did. Um, so we that was something that we could have at least experimented. I think we probably could have gotten buy-in. Can we at least allow half our professors to take off their masks when they when they when they or at least be at least randomized and be told whether gotta, or not
2: you're gonna you randomize the age as well, I guess. Well, no, I guess that. you would have
0: gotten a set of professors willing to be randomized, right? And yeah. then and then they would have been, we would have randomized the choice and then we would have seen it. Um, but I actually found so it's hard to know these things. And yeah. we're very quick to jump in to say if it if we got a good result, the things we did were re- responsible.
2: It's it's a great point. It's a great point, and I and I'll and I'll take it. Um, it's fair. I, I do, I mean, I think we have good studies on the efficacy of masks. But um we certainly need such studies. We one thing that's true is that we carry around we don't just jump into stories, we carry around strong intuitions. But I'm willing to stand by the intuition that masks matter until we have a lot of evidence to say it doesn't. And I'm pretty sure we don't have that right now. all right, guys, why don't we stop there on COVID for now? We've got a lot of sports to cover between now. And-
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio.
2: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Kate Massey hosting with Audi Weiner. Shane Jensen, Eric is out doing Eric Bradlow things. You guys can jump in here. We always like it when you do. Give us a ring on Twitter. Hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyball. Is our handle there? At WMoneyball. Always interested in your observations, claims, suggestions, criticism, whatever you got at WMoneyball. We also follow all of our guests, tweet occasionally about the world of sports analytics. You can send us an email. We have a mailbag via email. Our email address is moneyball at Moneyball at edu we read them all we get as many of them as we can onto the air and we absolutely love to hear from you gentlemen we've got some sports to talk about in particular football season is kind of hitting home stretch now we've just got just a few weeks left in the season and it's one of the more interesting ones from a playoff race perspective i'd say in a number of years not even just playoff race super bowl race Uh, We've got a lot of teams vying for this expanded playoff field, seven teams from each conference. Um, We've got division races kind of up in the air. We've got the, the number one bracket, the bye, up in the air. What around the NFL has caught your eye over the past week?
3: I, I think it is kind of that uh, what has definitely caught my eye over the last few weeks is, is that kind of, I, I, I mean, if you, I don't know if you want to call it increased parity or just the fact that the field does seem inc- incredibly wide open this year um, that, you know, I, I think there's only been say two or three teams that have been mathematically eliminated from playoff contention at this point. And there's very few teams that aren't real actual, like, you know, that, that aren't contenders basically, you know, you've mm-hmm. got, you've got just this, a cluster of like five, six, seven teams that are all like, you know, seven and six in the AFC vying for a couple wild card spots. It's super exciting. I mean, I, you know, it's obviously, I don't know how much of that is this kind of expanded playoff kind of, you know, this extra seventh spot versus just kind of the, the way, you know, just the way kind of the, the, the team shook out this year.
2: Yeah. It seems like more of it is the parody. I mean, the winningest team in the league is 10 and three. Mm-hmm. And so that's we we. It's most years, the last 10, we've had somebody making a run and undefeated for a long run. At
3: least yep. it feels that way. Um, Let me throw out
0: the, a question, uh, an observation, and maybe I start with a question. How many teams do you think it takes to get to more than 50 percent of the Super Bowl win probability and this year? And how much would it be differently? Because that's a kind of a me- one measure of sort of concentration. Mm-hmm. And I thought and, and, it was well, sort of wide open. And which I would have expected it would have taken, could taken you know, quite a few teams are, are in the in the Super Bowl competitive group, um, but I just checked that those numbers that that uh, one of you guys happily posted for us, but it's like four teams gets you well over
2: fifty percent, not well over, but it gets you to fifty. And we, we and and I feel like we t- t- we
3: talked a bit about this last week, and uh, at least Eric, I can't remember Kate how you came down, but at least Aaron Eric and I agreed that those those odds are too top heavy. That in fact, yeah. if I was to kind of, I think you know uh, i I don't know about fifty percent, but you know I, I could talk myself into eight nine ten teams as legitimate Super Bowl contenders this year, and I do think you should you know you kind of asked it as a lead into whether it's different this year versus la you know previous seasons. I do think like in the last few years leading up to this one um I think over you know I would have been comfortable assigning more on the scale of four or five teams you know, half, at least half the probability of winning the Super Bowl. Last year, would Tampa Bay wouldn't been one of those teams, ironically. So, you yeah, I
2: think about yeah. That,
3: but, a full third of that probability goes yeah. to Tom Brady's current team or former team.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's, that's funny. That's right. It, or, it
3: actually, I think it's the most, uh, prob, in terms of odds, the most probable uh, or, like, the highest betting odds matchup, which...
2: Well, it is. Well, let's let's just talk about where the numbers come from. So we ran Sims again off of unabated and we use two different sets of power rankings. Again, we use Massey Peabody for one and ESPN's FPI for the other. And they give similar concentration numbers, Adi. So for example, you said 50% 53 from FPI puts the top four at 53, whereas Massey Peabody puts the top four right at 50%, like almost on the number. And both of them have Pretty similar looking for, though there is a difference. Tampa Bay, FPI has them 20% to win the Super Bowl. Mass EP has them 22%. I mean, we have them number one by about a field goal over the number two team. And Pats, both systems have Pats coming in as the second most likely team. And so obviously the most likely out of the AFC. So there's your most likely Super Bowl, Shane, because that's pretty independent. Mm-hmm. Tampa Bay and New England, which would be. Just, I would have to skip media for the next month.
0: <laughs> Shane, wouldn't you like to go? Wouldn't that be an ideal Super Bowl for Shane J? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, no
3: doubt. No doubt. I, uh, yeah, that, that would be incredible. I mean, I, I almost don't necessarily, I mean, I think it would be wonderful, but I, I mean, we, I remember you, obviously they, they played each other already this season and the hype was kind of over the top, mm-hmm. even by my standards at the time. Right. So I, 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 I completely understand and sympathize with Cade's kind of, uh, <laughs> right. you know, not necessarily looking forward to that particular matchup. I, 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 you know, Cade, you can take solace in the fact that like the college football playoffs, even if that is the highest probability matchup, it's unlikely to actually realize. Right.
2: You mean Georgia, Alabama?
3: Or no, or just the, the, like, you know, I mean, you, you know, we were sort of like, you know, talking, you know, a few weeks uh, weeks ago about how this was definitely, you know, this is the, yeah the, that 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 the kind of modal top four was definitely going to somehow be the top four. That's and you right. said that there's always surprises that creep in.
2: That's right. That's my standard. I, I'm not
3: looking forward to the surprise taking down either the Patriots or Buccaneers, but there probably will be a surprise or two in there.
2: Yeah, especially when you talk about the final, the final four. Um, I mean, it's not going to go. I mean, FBI has it the basically cardinals Well, they have three nfc teams in the top four mm-hmm. as opposed to we have yeah we got we got cardinals and bucks in the in the nfc championship pats and chiefs and the afc championship um i want to i want to point out a little wrinkle that might be in there i, I tell me if i'm overlooking at this or over hypothesizing you know we all know that the number one seed is a big advantage this year i in fact i hate that about the way this thing is set up that number one seed it's a game yeah. off, a week off while all six others play the first round. But in the NFC, it could be that the battle for number two has a big advantage as well. If the number seven team is categorically not as good as the top six, is there a drop off in the NFC after the top six? This is my question. Is there a drop off after the top six in a way that doesn't exist in the AFC, which would make that fight for number two in the NFC all the more important? And that's kind of a Cardinals-Packers thing. If you give the Bucks the nod for number one, so let's just kind of walk through it real quick because I, the way it feels to me, you've got teams that you're actually scared of versus teams you're not that scared of. So the the six I think that seem clearly scary: Cowboys, Packers, Bucks, and then three from the West: Cardinals, Rams, and Niners. But who in that seventh spot would you actually worry about? Are you worried about the Washington Football Team or the Minnesota Vikings or the Denver Broncos? I mean. Am I wrong? Am I over? Philadelphia Eagles. That- let's not let's not discount the hometown <laughs> I'm sorry. team in, in that calculation. No, right. I'm not. I'm not.
3: Um, um, I'm not necessarily. Um, but I mean, I, the counter argument is whatever whoever survives that little gauntlet is going to be coming. I mean, the the thing you want to worry the seventh, you know, the last seed, whether it's the sixth or seventh seed, the last seed into the playoffs is, you know, by most objective measures, the worst team into the playoffs. But also, one of the hottest teams going into
2: the playoffs. No, you don't know if that's the case. It's there.
3: I mean, you don't know, but we're, you know, uh, we also don't know that these teams are counting, kind of, you know, the non stationary. I don't know. I mean, yes, as you just described, none of those teams are particularly scary to me. And in fact, you can move up one slot. I don't think the 40, whoever that third place team that you included from the NFC West is not even as scary to me as, 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 you know, the top five, say, for example, in that conference. Well, that's,
2: so, that, so that's a, so that's a fair question. So the Niners, I, I'm giving maybe the Niners a little too much credit. These things are obviously still moving around a lot. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, we might've been selling the Rams short. The Rams looked like serious contenders as of this weekend, but so it, things are going to move, but I, I saw it because a difference in Massey Peabody sim and the FBI sim is how we treat the Packers. And I kind of think it depends on whether you think the Packers are going to hold on to that number two spot, or if they're going to slip down to number three. Mm -hmm. And if you, I I mean, I'm a little
3: surprised that even, I mean, I, I guess you have Tampa Bay so much higher. I mean, Green Bay currently, if, I know. if, if they have the same if, record, see, right? the teams same teams win out, I think Green Bay even has the tiebreaker, so they are in fact the number one seed as we currently stand.
2: Yeah, right. So it, um, part of it is because we we everyone believes the Bucks are that much better, but it could also be that the schedule shapes up in their mm-hmm. favor versus what the Pack has to play between now and the end of the season. And of course, the Cardinals are in that run too. Yeah. So those three teams all—I mean—anything any, can happen. But our expectation would be that the Bucs would end up in that number one. And,
3: and, I mean, when we talk about teams like the Broncos or the Vikings, you know, or even the Kansas City Chiefs, the things that kind of like, as, as we discuss these simulations, which, of course, we all can agree are the right analytical kind of way to think about how things are going to go. It would be nice if we, you know, I assume that these, these um, simulations don't build in kind of the variance in team. Quality, right? It's like you know, both in terms of MassIP or FPI, you have a no, power, uh, a rank. Are the ratings for a particular team sampled from a distribution every time yeah. you sim? Oh, yeah. excellent. Okay, well, that, that I think that's worth sort of selling. I, I mean, and, I,
2: and and they're dynamic in that they yeah. change over time in the, in the in the exact amount that you would expect them to change over time in the real world. So they they evolve. We don't set if we believe that the Bucks are plus eight right now. We don't sim every week of the season at plus eight. They're going to evolve just as they normally evolve. So they're. They, but I
3: mean, like, say for example. So yeah, but you don't carry that. So you allow that plus eight to evolve. But do, are you sampling that from like a distribution of yes. like yeah? Any given week, week is really sampled. We have
2: a we have a mean performance expected yeah. for any given week, and there's a distribution around that, and they get us and they get a draw, and then as a result of that draw, we update. We get a simulated game, and we update their strength for the next week. And so it evolves over time. And so otherwise you would have an expectation at the start of the season and you would have the same numbers at the end of the season, the same expected performance at the end of the season, which is completely crazy town because there's no season in any league that's ever acted like that.
3: Yeah, no. And I, and I mean, I I guess it helps handle things like Kansas, like, you know, like Kansas City, of course, I, I personally think I've, I've never stopped believing in that team. You know, I think they're going to kind of be there at the end. But are, they're obviously a team that showed a tremendous amount of non-stationarity, as well right. as kind of just kind of uncertainty right. throughout the season. And that kind of you know, it, it is good that that kind of gets reflected in essentially these sims and in and, and in these rankings because I don't think five thirty eight necessarily does. You know, five thirty eight's got its elo, and of course, as you know, as the season goes on, they evolve the elo rating for every team. But when they simulate to the end of the season, it's that same elo rating that they're applying in those games.
2: Is that right? Yeah, it's, that's, that's a real. That's a real. That's I, I don't know for sure, but it's something that we thought. We did better than most early on, and it could be still an advantage. We our advantages get whittled away every year, and maybe we still have that one, but it's definitely baked in that way and unabated. And if you don't do it, you just you don't end up with enough variance in your in your system. So it's an important part of important part of the simulation. Um, speaking of which, we do have a little college football um, end of season. And we're here now. We've got bowls. We've got bowls this weekend, guys. We have bowls this weekend, I think, starting Friday, Friday night.
3: That's Um, exciting, because, I mean, I feel like last weekend I kind of, you know, did not get able, you you know. uh,
2: It was a Saturday without college football. Yeah, I missed it. I missed it. I know. it's it's, It's the first one since late August, and it's just kind of sad. It's a sad day when you don't wake up to that much college
3: football. NFL had to start moving games into Saturday just to fill the void.
2: Yeah, that's right. Well, that's the upside is that we get two NFL games this Saturday and this is the time of year they step up and do that. And so you get a little more fun. That's that's pro football four days a week. That's more often than not. That's pretty good. So this first weekend, let's just look at it real quick. Is there anything interesting here between now? We're going to be we're going to be back next Tuesday, which is the 21st. Between now and then, it looks like we have like nine football games, maybe nine football games. The Bahamas Bowl, Cure, Boca Raton, New Mexico, Independence, Lending Tree, L.A., New Orleans, and Myrtle Beach—you know all the old standbys. Hmm. There's a couple in here that look a little bit interesting. That Independence Bowl
3: looks kind of interesting, right? UAB. Yeah, exactly. BYU.
2: I mean, just for the to, the contrast in teams, UAB and Brigham Young—they have the Brigham Young is favored there by seven. We think that line's about right. Um, Oregon State, Utah State is another one that's really interesting because Utah State had a really strong year, unexpectedly mm-hmm. strong year. They're
3: like the second best team in the Pac-10, is that right? Or is that no, no, no?
2: The, Utah State. Utah, I was thinking Utah.
3: Oh, sorry.
2: Utah yeah. State is. Um, I don't know. They're like Mountain West or one of the Group of Five conferences out there, and um, it's fun to see them playing the a Pac-12 team. But mostly, we kick in after after that first weekend, we'll start stepping up into the bigger bowls. If you've got a confidence pool, we're going to get a, we're going to get our Massey Peabody numbers out into a confidence pool. Um, always a fun little thing. Cause a couple of things happen with the confidence pool. one, you get a bigger sample. There are 42 games. And so it's a little bit, a little more credible to test a model against 42 games in a typical weekend. Um, the other thing is that you rate each game by the confidence you have on your pick. And so this is a way we believe you should be evaluating models is there should be you're right more often when you feel strongly than when you feel weakly. And so that's the nice thing about confidence. You say, whatever you're picking the game straight up, just tell us your confidence. And so you get a more continuous measure instead of just a binary, a binary one zero. So it's still a small sample things, crazy things still happen, but it's, but it's a fun way to jump in. A downside is that you get all these flaky things like um, players opting out for the draft. You get coaching changes. I mean, some of the biggest You might get a parts, whole wave of COVID. You might <laughs> you might. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing it in some other sports. We haven't seen big doses of it in college football yet. But coaching changes are a big one. I mean, a lot of these, mm-hmm. a lot of these college, a lot of these schools that are playing in bowls have lost their coach. They got a new guy coming in. And what's that gonna do to the team? We put our numbers in and we just say, look, we're not gonna try to fine tooth this thing you these are the numbers and i think people year in year out i think people make more mistakes trying to adjust for all the contingencies as opposed to just going with what the data said um anyway we got a little college football coming up we'll talk more bulls next week we'll, we'll take the whole we'll tackle the whole thing next week because it'll be our last show um before the turn of the year um gentlemen what else around the world of sports what's interesting to you
3: well, I mean, I've been watching, uh, you know, I, 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 I guess I'll, I'll report uh, it on, on the NHL. I mean, un- unfortunately, some of the news is not so uh, generally positive in that, you know, there's been uh, some cancellations and stuff like that uh, due, due, due to COVID uh, cases. Unfortunately, as I kind of also unfortunately, as I sort of expected that, you know, this battle of Alberta that I've kind of set up as, 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 you know, something that might define this NHL season for the first time in 30, 40 years, uh, both the flames and Oilers have kind of been slipping in the standings. And right? uh, at least, at least with the flames, I think that's probably a slip back down to, you know, where, you know, kind of a priori where we might've had them at the beginning of the year. I think the Oilers really are going to be a, a legit Stanley cup contenders. So they probably, okay. you know, they, they, I think I would expect them to kind of stay up above. But and also aren't, I, aren't I, the, I
2: aren't the Flames one of the teams that have been knocked out with COVID. Who yes. No. They?
3: And so they're they, they've been I mean, they they'd already lost three or four or five in a row before the COVID cases popped up. But yes, now they've had their last they have their next three games um, um have have been canceled or postponed due to COVID as well. So they're really dealing with a lot of stuff out west right now.
2: How about our boys in Toronto? Are they still running well?
3: Oh, Toronto the Maple Leafs are doing well. They're looking they're them in Florida are basically kind of competing for the top spot in, in, in the east. Um so yeah, they 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 look one of the best, look like one of the top five teams in the NHL this year.
2: How about our local boys, the Flyers? Any any love? Oh, t- no.
3: No, terrible. I and disappointing in that they it seems like you they, they've just had Uh, A a really disappointing year on the ice and a lot of kind of drama with like personnel changes and stuff like that off the ice. So the Flyers have not been um, a fun team to watch this year, unfortunately.
2: Remind Um, us who we, we've got, we've got some friends in various places. Uh, We've got, there are some analytics, happy clubs. So we think of the Leafs as being happy, of course, analytically lightning. Or am I confusing them with the Rays? Do we know that about the lightning? Maybe I'm confusing that with the Rays. I mean, the um, I,
3: I you know the lightning have been very, very good the last couple of years, so the grade of analytics was a big part of that story. I don't know that for a fact. I mean, the Kraken is the other one, which of course, we should always check in on. they you know the first year of an expansion team is always exciting unfortunately this is it's going so far the way most first years of expansion teams go. They're at the bottom of the league,
2: so when um, I think good. they're
3: actually underperforming a little bit, I would expect them to kind of come back up. okay on that.
2: okay, okay. All right. Well, um, what do we know on the NBA side before we slide out of here? In the last minute, what do we have going on in the NBA? More cancellations, right? More COVID yeah. cancellations?
3: Yeah. No, and I mean, like, I, I think that's that that that's been the kind of the main thing I've been tracking, basically, is, is, is kind of hoping that these things, this doesn't become like a whole wave where suddenly we have to kind of somehow go into pods or something like that or just shut the shut the season down, for uh, take a pause in the season for a couple of weeks.
2: Well, we got Steph Curry going for the all-time record on – three-point shots tonight this is Tuesday night he's going into Madison Square Garden against the Knicks if he hits two he breaks it so presumably he's going to break it that's incredible
3: that's incredible I, sorry I still think I know he's not young anymore but I still maybe it's just because he still looks young or whatever but I just heard, good. <laughs> I, I think of him, I think of him at like the something like at the middle point of his career probably he is well beyond the middle point of his career but to be yeah. breaking records at this point like career records at this point it's just yeah what an impressive person.
0: No, I mean, you yeah. got to talk about Steph Curry. You can't talk about Steph Curry without reminding everyone that he really broke the game. <laughs> he
2: changed the That's game. That's true. He That's did. What changed what I mean. the Definitely game. changed the game. Just a willingness to shoot from the distance. And then all of a sudden, guys, you know, start growing up shooting from that distance. And yes, I mean, the game has been shifted altogether, and it'll be a well-deserved record that you will presumably finish tonight in Madison Square Garden, which would be great fun. All right, guys, that has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the
0: break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio. Welcome back.
2: Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into Q3. We have lost another co-host. Shane Jensen stepped away. He's going to be back for the interview here in Q4 Fun interview, by the way, a little pitch, a little pitch for Q4. We have a Associate Portfolio Manager of a hedge fund in here. She's a modeler. She's a quant modeler, quant finance. And we like to jump into these adjacent fields periodically and see what's happening in the modeling world and sometimes get new perspectives on our own models. So hang on there for Q4, and Shane will be back. Have just Adi in here today in this quarter, and we want to talk a little bit about a topic that is on lots of sports pages and even newspapers outside the sports page. And it's right in our backyard. It's a topic that's come up every now and then over the last year or so. We've needed to get into it. So we're going to take a chance and walk into this one. We're talking about the transgender swimmer, Leah Thomas, who's swimming for Penn this year. First year she's been swimming there. And she's breaking all kinds of records. Some people are raising questions about this. Some people are concerned. Some people are supportive. And it's not the first time we've seen transgender athletes competing at high levels. We've seen, I think, Olympic weightlifters. We've seen some runners. And so we're going to have a little bit of a conversation. We've only got about 15 minutes here, but we want to talk a little bit about this, partly so that we can talk about it more in the future. It's going to be an issue for us to talk about. So we want to approach it from an analytical perspective, from a statistical perspective, and offer that kind of fresh look at this. Adi, curious how you've been thinking about it. I know you've been reading up on this stuff. There are some thoughtful pieces, thoughtful podcasts, What is your perspective on what the controversy we're seeing here at Penn?
0: Well, just as a little bit of background, I was kind of prepared to talk about it with the Olympics um, with Laurel Hubbard, the uh, weightlifter that we actually essentially dodged that conversation because she was eliminated very early in the Olympics. We were thinking about talking about with Castor Semenya. Um, They're quite different than Leah Thomas and, um, and, and that, and, and different, and different whole, in what way,
2: different sports, okay, so, obviously, but so, you mean other things.
0: So, uh, so Castor Semenya is, uh, has a DSD, a difference of sexual development, um, and has, was, is raised, was raised her whole life and still is a, a woman. Um, and she has high testosterone levels because she does not have ovaries or a uterus. She's she has uh, undescended testes and the inability to process an androgen or testosterone, uh, but still has higher levels than a w- woman typically has outside the, the range. So the Olympics, uh, essentially telling her in order to compete, she'd have to lower that amount. She didn't want to do that. That uh, was a uh, and, and that was her natural level. And so that that's opened up a whole different set of, uh, of questions. We won't discuss them now. I want to get to Leah Thomas. But before we get to Leah Thomas, you have to ask yourself, well, how about Laura Hubbard? Well, Laura Hubbard is, is much more similar to Leah Thomas in the sense that Uh, Raised male um, was excellent as a weightlifter as a as a male, but unlike Leah Thomas, was never particularly good. I mean, certainly not as an adult. Had some junior records, Um, but took many many years off of the sport, and then was for many many years living under uh, medical transition, testosterone suppression, and then only then, in about 2017, went back to a sport at somewhat advanced age, um, and is. Ed is very good at the sport, but certainly not world-class. Um, although good enough to, to be selected for the Olympics. And that, that's a whole section of discussion, which I'm just going to save. What makes Leah Thomas really quite interesting, and we can talk about in the context of Ivy League sports, um, for the first, I guess, two years or two or three, I'm not sure I've got the number right, um, Leah was a very high-performing athlete in the men's division, uh, not, you know, as the as scale of things, Penn's got a good swimming team. We're proud of them. They do pretty well, but they're not, they're not, uh, you know, Florida Stand or USC or, um, and they don't represent the, the best swimmers in the nation by any measure, but every now and then they have some really good swimmers um, and they are very co- competitive. And Leah Thomas was, um, I believe a second team, all Ivy swimmer is um, very high quality um, uh, when, when she was performing in the men's division for the first few years when she was here at Penn. So what happened was the COVID, um, everything was suspended for a year. Leah transitioned, did a year of testosterone blocking, and that made her eligible to swim in the women's division, and has done so now several times. And that's where the news has come.
2: So talk about eligibility, and you referred to in the Olympics as well, there are testosterone level based eligibility criteria? Is that what you're saying? Yeah,
0: okay. So there's been a lot of focus on testosterone, which actually more recent data has suggested is really misplaced. Um, but testosterone has been essentially the marker. Um, testosterone is the, is the hormone is that, that initiates your sex development. So it's not that testosterone levels themselves are a marker of your of your athletic performance. That's a mistake, by the way. To believe that the people who have higher testosterone um, among say men are going to be better or worse at sports. It really doesn't work out that way. But testosterone is what transitions you in uterus from developing testes or or not developing, et cetera, et cetera. So what the the Olympic committee is doing, kind of following the doping scandal, if you will, um, in parallel, they look for people who have too much testosterone and they force you to lower it. And that's very different than what we're dealing. So you, with you now. said
2: look for look for people. You mean look for women. You don't mean that they ask. They don't test testosterone levels in men as well, do they, or do they?
0: Well, they do drug testing in men. Uh, so they're looking for something similar. Obviously, um, they're looking at okay. evidence of of, of testosterone antagonists. What they do or do not do, I don't know. I, I'm uh, no expert in this. Um, so what I, what I, what Castor Semenya was confronted with was natural occurring high levels of testosterone, and they were and they were asking her to reduce that, and there were legal okay. cases around that. If you are on testosterone blockers, this is exactly the thing that Castor Semenya did not want to take. So it's very different here. If you are biologically natally male like Leah Thomas, and you want to transition. To compete with women, you have to be, according to NCAA rules, at least a year on testosterone blockers. So your testosterone okay. levels are low. There's no... Okay. D- the question is, what does low testosterone do to performance? And that leads to questions about fairness. And so I-, I think I once had David Epstein on our show talking about the sports genes. And one of the things that we, dis- what we discussed is that the advantages to in sports and athletics to being male go way beyond what is um, directly uh,
2: reducible or changeable by lowering your testosterone levels. So, so as a, as a, as a layperson to this topic, it strikes me that I might benefit from having had testosterone, you know, all my life or since puberty or whatever, that, that, that would, that would withstand suppression for a year, presumably. So basically
0: there's two phases at which you, you develop under testosterone in uterus and during puberty. And that produces large numbers of changes in your physiology. Bigger muscles, of course, especially the upper body muscles, but bigger lungs, bigger, stronger um, bones, different dimensions, right? And hip dimensions, length, like height. These are the obvious ones.
2: But so also, these are relatively permanent. Some of these, these are permanent. Some of these some are permanent. them
0: are permanent and some of them are not. And there was okay. a, almost a hypothesis that you needed to prove it was permanent. And, uh, and the null hypothesis is that it wasn't. And so when the NCAA proposed, and, and others did propose this one year of testosterone reduction, they, uh, the supposition was, is that leveled the playing field, if you will. And it turned the uh, trans woman to having just another variable that we observe in human beings. And some people are taller, some people are shorter. That is actually scientifically just not true. Um, huge numbers of, of, of very, very, strong differences remain and you can see that for example in in the data that's been collected and you can see that in leah thomas's times herself she would still compete at the middle of the pack in the ivy league in the male division she hasn't really
2: gotten that much slower Mm -hmm. and so as a result real quickly this will vary by race of course but of course how how would the top performing ivy league female swimmers compete in male divisions
0: well, it depends on what level. So, so one of the things you, you you have to talk about this is that if I took the, for example, the 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 hundred best, um, two hundred, which is a, a sprintish, not super sprint, but a two hundred sprint, a two hundred yard freestyle time, the best in the country, all two, all hundred would be men. You wouldn't find any any, but at the Ivy League, where you're not really at the super top, you you it you could. I doubt you would find a woman at the Ivy League competing with the men. Uh, Katie DelDecchi, just to give you a sense of background, when she was a college swimmer, her absolute best time at the 200 is probably right around what Leah Thomas is swimming right now. So Leah Thomas okay. is has the best time in the country currently, not the best time ever, the best time in the country ever, uh, currently at, at three distances, has won records, has set pen records in three already, pool records okay. in a bunch of places. Okay. Um, and this okay. is where, where it's become controversial because you took essentially a second team Ivy league swimmer transitioned to the women's side, didn't lose very much time, maybe a second, maybe even less natural variation. You'd see maybe two seconds, depending on the length of the, of the, of the, of the distance of the, of the, of the competition, the race, and now has, um, and now is basically at the level that she's competing Ivy league, similar division one level is just completely dominating. And it's potential if it goes on might be the, the college champion in the women's division um, by the, okay. by the time, by the time they taper and they get ready. I mean, it's one of the things that you have to recognize is that during the school year calendar year, um, uh, one of the calendar, you know, calendar, they're just, they're just, they're just practicing. Um, and then they're competing. So they don't quite have the times that they do later on, but you just saw this, you saw this incredible gap. She, you know, she won by 38 seconds in the 1600 length um, freestyle. She won by like
2: 12 oh, seconds really? oh my
0: God. In, in the uh, So Adi, the this, this
2: is, this is what, what is the right domain for making this decision? I mean, what, what's the right domain? Cause is it a, physiological one is it a philosophical one because at some point this starts it's just like a question of fairness in some sense i i I don't know how how do how are you thinking about it because we can say physiologically i can imagine why they use the testosterone rule because it's an it's very clear it's intuitive and it's kind of an objective easy out in some sense what are we supposed to do start measuring like the 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 breadth of shoulders or something and put that within a distribution i mean that sounds it's pretty it's pretty hard once you go past this clean objective testosterone thing.
0: Right? Well, I mean, I'm not in the, in the realm of policy. I can only identify statistical variations and discuss them. Um, and so that's actually but, where but, we, we can actually handle this. The, the, if you're asking the question, one thing you do is in, in, a, in any sport or attribute, or you can think about it, say swimming, and that varies by length, the male advantage. And when I say the male advantage, I'm talking about at the, at the highest levels, right. So I was a swimmer when I was in high school, and I competed in co-ed competitions, and I couldn't beat the best women. And, and that wasn't, was, that wasn't so, so extraordinary. I wasn't particularly good, even though I was bigger. Um, and so the natural variation in, in body types and in training in particular easily dwarfed um, the difference that I, advantages that I had about being male. But at the top levels, and if you think about it, it really has to do with differences in average. And that, that differences become monumental. So if I ask you, you know, the top 1,000 or so runners in the world of the 100-meter um, uh, sprint, they're all going to be male, better than Florence Griffin's joiner. If you look at the, the fastest, you know, swimmers in the short distance or long distances. So men tend to be about 10% better um, at, the, at the extremes in, in many races in swimming, about 10% better. Just throw that out as a fixed number.
2: If you lower uh, your But by the way, don't we the, the, the long the longer you swim, the less this advantage exists, right? So at the very long distance, that's right. The longer the, good
0: advantage, well. the less disadvantage you would have on a percentage basis. Um,
2: no, not even but, on a percentage on absolute terms. At some point, I think the women swim as well as the men. You go, you swim long it, enough. It, it, in fact, well, well, that's the that's the that's the expectation. But
0: but uh, at five hundred meters or at sixteen hundred, it's not quite there yet. So the basic. I guess conc- you ask a tough question, What well, what are you supposed to do? And one of the things, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, right. but the basic idea is you're supposed to balance fairness versus inclusion. I mean, that's really what you're, what, what the, what the fundamental question is, how do you okay. balance fairness with inclusion? Okay. And so yeah. looking at a testosterone measure was proposed and accepted as a way to do that. I think what we're learning now is that it succeeds on the inclusion side, but it, And if you actually look at it, honestly, given the huge, vast differences, statistical visions, differences on a population level, it doesn't succeed on the fairness side. And you Mm -hmm. don't really see that until you get a swimmer of Leah Thomas's quality making the transition. So if it were Mm -hmm. a a swimmer of a lower level male quality, you wouldn't have noticed it because the extra motor, if you will, just wouldn't have been enough to, to stick out. So what happened here for really for the first time is you're seeing records fall, pen records fall, um, competition records fall, and potentially, although probably not likely, I don't think we're looking at uh, NCA championship records falling, but it is putting this conversation in the public mind. And we're going to have to talk about what is the best way to balance fairness and inclusion. And I think there's going to be a revision. I, I, I Listen, I, I shouldn't say that. I can't predict the future. I'm terrible at it. I'm good at predicting the past um, have to predict the future. I, I can't do that. But I, I think that there will be a lot of discussion on how to more creatively balance fairness with inclusion.
2: Well, it strikes me that the distinction you're making is helpful in understanding what's going on, that it, that it matters much more at the elite levels than you might notice at average levels, but that makes it hard to implement. That kind of nuance means that it's a hard issue for policymakers. Because where do you have to draw that line now, presumably? Or you draw it everywhere and you're less inclusive in places where it doesn't matter as much for returns. So you've got this interaction that just make, that complicates an already complicated situation.
0: Yes. And, and there, listen, there's enormous variety. So, there, so we didn't discuss this, but in Connecticut, there's what they call complete self-ID, which is not what the NCA requires, which is a testosterone um, blockage for a minimum of a year. Complete self-ID just allows you to just switch. Um, based on based on your self-definition of the gender yep. that you, you you adapt and so we've seen and there are court cases um, winding its way through through court because ma- initiated by girls in high school 15 14 year old who lost to boys who made a switch to now become and competed in the girls division just the next day yeah
2: yeah right okay so uh, this is all going to be something that's talked about, it sounds like, at many levels and in many sports and in many geographies. And um, it's an interesting question. There are some statistics to bring to bear on it, certainly plenty of science and challenging philosophical questions of fairness. Um, I'm sure we'll come back to it. Adi, thanks for that discussion. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back for an interview, interview about it. Quantitative finance, we're going to go to an adjacent field, see what we learn about analytics. Come back and join us. After the break, Wharton,
0: you're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio.
2: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter has become our interview segment in the time of COVID. This week, Nina Ganedden. Nina is an associate portfolio manager at Man Numeric. What is Man Numeric? It's part of MAN group, a hedge fund, very large hedge fund, we are wading into one of our adjacent topics. We're going to leave sports analytics for the, for the day and talk, uh, as we do sometimes, in an adjacent field that uses analytics. And we think this is very helpful and maybe, maybe especially valuable in learning a little bit more from a different perspective on analytics. So Nina, before we dive into things, welcome to the show. Delighted to have you. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Nina works for a, a, a London hedge fund, but she's over there in the West somewhere, San Francisco. She's sporting some skis in the background. She was talking Maddie Gee up about the slopes out there in Tahoe. So she is an associate portfolio manager now. She's in charge of U.S. strategy. She spent, I think, you've been there maybe four years at, at, at the Man Group as a, re, a research analyst. Is that the fair a fair way to think about it? Before that, J.P. Morgan, undergrad at University of Chicago. So, so we're fans straight away. And she has a master's in finance from Princeton. Nina, I saw your work at a conference earlier this fall, and um, it, really, it really jumped out to me because we talk a lot on the show about non-stationarity. And it's hard to talk about forecasting without at least implicitly talking about non-stationarity. And what jumped out most in your, in your talk to me was that you, you weren't just talking about it, you were modeling it quite explicitly in a way that helped you guys make better decisions about your trading strategies. And so we want to talk about that, but we have a lot of work to do before we can talk about that because a, a lot of folks, including us, don't know much about hedge funds or quantitative finance. And so can you give us a little bit of background to start out with? Like, What is the man group again exactly? And what, what makes a hedge fund a hedge fund? Let's start at that level and then we'll get deeper from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So at the highest level, what we do is we invest money for clients. Um, and within man group, there's a million different sub pieces. And some of them are more the traditional, traditional discussionary route that you think about, you know, a PM sitting there thinking about, oh, I think Apple stock is going to go up or down or et cetera. I'm thinking about company specific and those discretionary types of bets. But I'm in the part of the company that's actually quant, where I don't sit there thinking about necessarily whether an individual company is going to go up or down. I think about statistics some machine learning techniques, some data science techniques. And essentially what we do on the quant side is kind of similar to what you think about as normal data science, except we're trying to forecast stock returns. So what we do is instead of thinking about one company, we think about every tradable company in the US at the same time. Um, And so we build models that look at things like, is this company fairly valued? Do other investors that we think are smart, like this company, how are, do we think the fundamentals are going to, to look in the next quarter based on now casted data, et cetera. And we build these models and then these models really pick the stocks for us. Um, and so we put all these models into a portfolio. We pick the stocks we like. We obviously have some risk controls, some ideas about trading costs associated with them. Um, but really fundamentally it's the models that decide what names we trade on any given day.
2: Mm -hmm. And something I gathered from your presentation is that you're deploying different trading strategies. A model might be a very narrow trading strategy and I'm, and you must have much, many of these models, a portfolio manager will have many models running in the same fund, right? So what's an example of a particular you, you gave an example, let's just use one from your talk since you, you were um, kind enough to share. So uh, like a regional bank model and then a credit card spend model. These are, these are trading strategies that you guys have conceived and tested on historical data. You come to believe in them and you deploy them as a way of identifying which stocks you wanna buy and how much you wanna spend on, is that right?
1: Yep, uh, that's right. But then of so, course the big trick with all of these is all of these models look great in research. Otherwise, frankly, they wouldn't make it past investment committee. And then the really tricky part here is what happens when you start trading it live? What happens if in reality, your reality doesn't look like what your results from research said? Or what if the model just does really horribly live? What do you do?
2: Or if it runs great for a quarter and then starts going down, is that because the market is just noisy? Or is that because um, it's played out? Or what if it does well for decades? And you guys have had some money on some strategy for a long time. It seems to have been a robust strategy. And then all of a sudden something shifts. So it's this question of, is it still good? Um, Do we, do we push through the down, the rough patches, or is it something that we need to pull? So this is a decision that the investment committees must make like all the time, like every investment committee, like regularly is making these kinds of judgments, right? Like what does that conversation traditionally look like and, and what, and how were you trying to change that conversation?
1: So honestly, traditionally, if you go back like three plus decades, there were very few quant models out there. Like there was a handful of them. And the investment committee could just look at all of these models every single day and know what was happening, understand the market forces and be able to have these decisions in a discretionary fashion. Nowadays, we have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of models. And we have these new types of models because there's all these new alternative data sets coming out with all these different sources like geolocation, credit card spend, et cetera that we never had before. And these data sets tend to get arbitraged away pretty quickly. There are also a lot of newer data vendors. So the quality of the production data you might get might actually be really different than what you've seen in research. And so it's becoming more and more of an issue where we are expecting more models to fail and to be arbitraged away. And also at the same time, we have such a proliferation of these models that no one investment committee can sit there and look through every one of these models every single day and understand what's going on with every one of them and no one to flag. So now the question is, how do we automate this?
2: Okay, real quickly, just before we go to the how to automate, just make it one bit more concrete for us. What does it mean a credit card spend model? This is like literally the name of one model and maybe you're limited on how much you can say, but what's an example of what that might look like in practice as
1: an actual so trading strategy? For example, you see all these data, you'll, you'll see a data set that has how much was spent on X companies products in stores across the US or across Europe or across Japan. And you essentially you aggregate them out, you try to get rid of certain biases, certain seasonality, for example. And then you look at how either like the growth, you either look at the growth or you look at the correlation between growth and sales and what that actually means for earnings. And if this actually predicts fundamentals, and if you think that looking at credit card spend this month will help you predict what earnings will be like at the end of the quarter, then that's a great way to get into a good trading position before the earnings are actually announced.
2: Perfect. Got it. And how many, how many of these models might a portfolio manager have running at any given time?
1: I think right now, my guess, and I haven't counted, um, probably something maybe like 30 to 50, somewhere in there. Okay. Okay. Um, But these are different types of models. Some of these cover a few hundred names. Some of these cover thousands of names. Some of these you only see in one region. Some of these are universal. So it's really, there's a huge range.
2: Got it. Got it.
0: I just want to make a couple of clarifications. When you said that historically you might've had only a couple, two or three models running at the same, there only were two or three models. That would be at your hedge fund every hedge fund has their own sets of models. They've been using some more, some fewer, and they've been doing this for a very, very long time.
1: Right. right. Going back
0: to the eighties at the very least. And I, I, you know, I've been around many people involved in these in and outs of these businesses. What you're talking about is the explosion really of data sets, which allows you to create incredible number of new approaches. And, and that's been really ramped up recently, just to give our listeners a little bit of a variation, um, I remember hearing about a one model trying to predict Uber's resu- results by just trying to scrape the number of drivers from the from the websites, they didn't publish this, you know, it's sitting there, it's this data out there. You can go online and see the drivers kind of walking, you know, driving around and scrape all this and then sort of figure out what their growth is because they're not releasing those numbers. And then you can, but you can get these covariates. And then, and when you use the word arbitrage it out, I don't think people necessarily know what that means either. Um, That basically means once it's, once everyone else is using it, it gets priced in and therefore it's no longer an advantage. And so a lot of these details uh, by the way, the parallel to sports, of course, is having data sets that tell you what's going on on the field that other, other teams don't have. So PFF would be a, a great data set that other the teams have to buy in order to get that advantage. Now, if you're not buying it, your disadvantage has almost been arbitraged out.
2: Yeah. And the same with you know, the motion tracking that has become yep. more and more common. And it may have been a bigger advantage for teams. It probably still is a bigger advantage for teams that can handle those data and process those data more efficiently over time, whatever hedge they edge they have will, will go down.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I guess kind of following up on that, I think, you know, the, kind of one of the frustrating things I see in the sports analytics community is that so, you know, so much of the kind of cutting edge data sets or mo- modeling that's been done of that data is kind of at these in-house at a team or whatever, where there's, Everything's proprietary and nobody can tell. There's no communication of lessons learned or models tried that have not worked or models tried that have worked, um, you know, across teams. And I assume it's the same way in the hedge fund world. You guys never actually get to talk about what works and doesn't work with each other. So there must be just a tremendous amount of kind of redundant research and, and development going on.
1: I think that's the problem with, you know, industry versus academia, but all, I mean, to some degree, hedge funds will publish things like white papers. And obviously, you'll never go into the nitty gritties. But you can sort of understand the types of strategies, at least. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Nina, let's talk about your you. What,
2: you what you set out. And Shane, Shane bounces between being a complete idealist and a complete cynic. <laughs> and I love these little idealistic moments. we got to celebrate them. Um, Nina, uh, now you've got this problem of you, you've got these models out there. You know, some of them either weren't, weren't as good as the research suggested or that they were good for a short period of time. And now you need to reap them. You decided to tackle that systematically. So um, how novel was this? It was novel to me, but it may not be as novel as I think it was. How novel was this? And can you talk about how you went about doing it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So honestly, the reason I initially decided to tackle this is because finding new alpha models is really hard in today's environment. It's incredibly competitive. Margins are razor thin. The level, just the how, the, how, the rapidity with which things get arbitraged away is so fast. And I thought this might be a low-hanging fruit. It Spoiler alert, it really wasn't. <laughs> um, it ends up being a whole year-long project and a very difficult one at like that. But um yeah, it was pretty novel. I think it came out of a conversation with my then group head who headed our research team at like 7 p.m. at night when no one else was around. And I was thinking about talking, I was complaining that we don't have enough Bayesian thought processes, frankly, within our within the firm. Um, and within quant as a whole, even though I think Bayesian the Bayesian mindset is a perfect approach for finance. Mm-hmm. Um quick, how would you define of, what do you
2: what do you mean by the Bayesian mindset? What, with the, with the I think on. the
1: idea of having a prior for example is huge so a lot of the traditional ways that we think about model failure and quant we look at things like drawdown like a model has lost a lot of money you know very simplified but if a model has lost yeah. a lot of money we turn it off yeah. but really we have all this great research I was a researcher I know how much work we used we do on all of these things and we have these priors we run these simulations for you know five, 10 years over thousands of names. And we just, why would we throw all that information away? We have mm-hmm. some understanding. Why and would Nina, we codify that?
2: Nina, so previewing a little bit where you're going, not only do you, in some cases you have five to 10 years and thousands of names. And in other cases, you have two years and hundreds of names. And in Bayesian terms, that means your priors are much stronger on, in the former case than the latter, right? And why not attend to those differences as part of where you're coming from, right?
1: Exactly, 100%. All
2: right, so, so now on to the task that you thought was going to be low-hanging fruit and turns out to be a year's worth of work. What, 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 why did it take a year? What does that involve?
1: So it took a year for many reasons. First and foremost was, I forgot a lot of my evasion statistics. The
2: <laughs>
1: so there was, some quality, there was some quality textbook time involved. Okay. Um, then it's a huge task just to code all this up. Um, and that was another, and to code everything up into a package that any portfolio manager or any researcher in the firm could just download and run. Right. Um, and then also there's just a lot of input. So there are a lot of, every PM has things that they think about, that they worry about that they would want incorporated in this system and adding all of those in without just having sort of an infinite dimensional mess of code is not the easiest. And then of course, understanding how the system can actually be used to make decisions and how it actually works with data. And also recently we've had the recent window in finance has been quite strange um, from market market dynamics. Um, And so understanding how to still not lose the forest for the trees and not be completely poisoned by the last four years of financial data all of that's been really tricky and frankly a lot of that's not a closed a closed problem still
2: right I'm sure I'm sure even when you have this thing live and going there's an infinite number of ways you can improve it and you continue to get feedback. Some people love it the way it is some people think you're missing important bits. Um, so you talk about so a portfolio manager can pull this thing up and um, you've given them a few dimensions to play with. Can, can you give us an example of how they would use it and what what judgments they're going to be entering in order to use it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I think in the heart, in the simplest sense, what you could really do is you could look at a model, and essentially this would tell you that it, you are X percent confident that this model doesn't work, and then it could it could just shut it off. But of course, ideally, <laughs> you want to know about that before you get there because this is a backwards looking metric. Ideally, you want to know that this model is starting to fail instead of having to wait. Four years and then say, "Oh, okay, it hasn't worked in four years. Now let's kill it." That's mm-hmm. four years of wasted time. Mm-hmm. Um, so ideally, is to have these real time updates where you can look at a model and start to see that your confidence in its underperformance is starting to trend upwards. And mm-hmm. that's actually before you really hit any critical threshold. That's actually when you want to go to the IC or go to the researchers and say, "Is the fundamental hypothesis of this model still true?" Mm-hmm. Um, and if it if it's not that's that's an easy answer. If it is, is there something going on in the market dynamics right now that could cause this period of underperformance, mm-hmm. um, or is frankly there's just something wrong with the production feed of data we're getting from a purely mechanical standpoint? Mm-hmm. Um, so really, ideally, you use this system more as an early advance as an early warning, rather than a backwards looking. This has failed. We just wasted five years. Let's kill it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other really cool thing about it is when you put in a new model, you can actually think about your prior that you want to feed in and that you want to be updating with the live data. And there's a few pieces that go into that. So for example, all of our simulations, essentially there's a selection bias. The only models that we put in live are models that look really good in, sim- in simulation. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, as a researcher, you wouldn't go to an investment committee. But we also know that those on paper returns—we usually never see returns that good in our live experience. Um, It's unfortunate, but nothing is ever as good as you think it's going to be. And so, you can actually choose to haircut just the return that you see in your simulation, and that's a little bit of an experience-based metric. So we know. Hold on, let's
2: let's just hit this real quickly, and I want to I want to quote you from the. From the, from the talk because it was hilarious. You said the up tra- oh, th- this is very close. The sad truth of, well, everything is that nothing ever looks as good in reality as on paper. <laughs> that pause, well, you know, everything likes it. So you're talking about research. You, 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 you guys give models a haircut. You just know they're not going to be as good. And so one of, the, one of the parameters you play with in building your prior is how much of a haircut to give it. So do I believe the returns are going to be 90% Fifty percent, thirty percent, ten percent, and so if you bake that into your prior, that means you're once you start seeing results, the conclusions you draw will differ depending on how much of a haircut you gave it up front. Is that right? And
1: that's 100%. that's
2: one example. That's one dimension that you're using to build your prior. Audie's trying to jump in here for a second. Yeah, I'm trying to jump in because there's a
0: there's a kind of a, 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 a operating assumption that you're able to do something at all here. Um, and I want to dig in on that a little bit. I, I can believe that if you get new data sources that other people don't have, that's kind of very an amazing, great opportunity if you can use it and milk as much as you can out of it until other people are using it too. But moving away from that, you know, set side information that others don't have, how do you even prove to me that you can do anything? Like, stocks <laughs> go up. I've made a lot of money in you know, my very passive investments um there's the biggest problem with stocks is missing unobserved risk um you test your models out of back you don't see that big risk event because they don't happen often um you don't model it you know and therefore you do well and then all of a sudden bam that happens the whole thing collapses how do you know or does it matter as long as you get money and you don't care um you get paid um what's the difference
1: no i think we definitely care about the big crashes
0: Well, sure Uh you do, but I mean, (laughs) but remember the thing is, when those happen, we get this special pleading that happens, right? Who could have predicted the Russian ruble would have collapsed, or the the Mexican peso, or that the housing market would do what it done? That's, uh, you know, none of none of us could have foreseen that. I mean, when there's a big crash, there's always also a big excuse. So I want to know, you know, I mean, there's lots of talk about well, we're going to be, we're not going to be correlated with the market, so we have all this. But if you know, if you're going to convince someone who's not an institution, not a mega wealthy person, someone who's really being cautious about where they're investing their money.
2: Why should they pay your fees? So hold on, real quickly, one, we, Adi, that whole perspective can become real tautological real quick because it's easy for you to say uh, it's only had extra return because of some um, price factor, and so I don't think you have a whole lot more room than you're accusing her, her to have, and so do you have, as much, you should have as much burden as a as a hedge fund manager. Now, look, I'm a Chicago good passive investor myself, but some of these guys, some, the rare exceptions are able to find edges. So let's just ask the general question, Nina, as a researcher, how hard have you found it to be to build models that you believe in and that are successful over a long enough time over a robust enough environment that you think is actually a true edge? What, what, what as, a, as a person who's been in the industry for a little while and have, have tried to find those models- what would you say about it and how common do you think it is how unusual do you think it is
1: so i will say that most research projects fail um mm-hmm. i have had many projects that i loved fail um because you look at the results in simulation or you run some sort of robustness check and it turns out that oh no you were actually just collecting some like like liquidity premium or something like that and it wasn't a genuine source of alpha Um, so honestly, the majority of the research projects we do don't go to IC, um, and that's Mm -hmm. to be expected. And that's kind of, that's just the nature of the beast. I will Mm -hmm. say that at the end of the day, and this is, I I will break out of my little cynical bubble to say this (laughs) at the end of the day, most of our clients are institutions and we're looking at like things like big pension funds. So no matter how good of an excuse you have. If there is something big in the market and your system wasn't prepared for it, at the end of the day, you are losing firefighters and teachers their pension. And I think, no matter how big of an excuse you have, that should make it hard for you to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll go back into my cynical bubble. Um, <laughs> no, but I think it's not because it's not just about alpha, right? Like it's also about risk controls. It's also about in quant, for example, most of the bets we make on any specific stock are actually quite small. We have generally more diffuse portfolios. We're holding hundreds of names. So if one name blows up, usually the size of that name in our portfolio isn't actually enough to trigger a full meltdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like things like that, you have to have the risk control system there. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. I have kind of a question about the the sort of the haircuts you were talking about before. And I, I mean, we don't have to get into kind of specifically how that's done. I just was kind of curious to how much that's done sort of ad hoc kind of, you know, just using your subject domain knowledge versus, yeah, I mean, the kind of Bayesian paradigm that you're already building into a lot of your kind of predictions and calculations kind of naturally builds, you know, it. it I feel like part of Bayesian forecasting is naturally building in haircuts into your forecast right i mean you this is what kind of the shrinkage that you know shrinking towards sort of like you know like shrinking towards zero or shrinking towards kind of like you know more humble sort of predictions is kind of like an inherent sort of model based haircut so I, I guess i the the, the high level question is how much of how much of that you know the haircutting that you guys do um, kind of is, is, is part of the Bayesian modeling enterprise versus kind of post hoc sort of like, you know, a check, you know, a check on the Bayesian modeling em- enterprise.
1: I think that's a great question. So I think right now it's still a bit more ad hoc just because there are so many different variables that can go into how big that haircut is that I think right now we just don't have enough observations to be able to properly estimate the model. Hmm. Um. So if you think about it, so things for example like how new is this data vendor? How much do we trust their mapping? Um. How many names does this cover? What kind of macroeconomic regimes has have we seen in research? If you've only seen, you know, the high growth period of the last few years, versus have you seen two thousand nine? Um. Questions like how many names are covered? What's the global coverage? And. If there is global coverage, do we think this model, does this model work similarly in Japan as it does in the U.S.? And if we see really different results between those two regions, does that make sense to us in terms of how those markets work? Or is this something troubling where we think that maybe what we're seeing in one of these two regions is just noise or some sort of weird statistical fluke? So so one of
2: the things I'm hearing is that this this is a structured way of thinking through your prior. That you you've come up with as kind of a almost a checklist of issues to talk through, um, in order to determine how strong or diffuse your prior is as you think as you put this thing into the market, and in fact even that list that you just ran through I'm sure is the product of many conversations throughout the firm on the things that people want to think about and they have been having these conversations. Different groups have talked about different subsets of these, and you go around and collect a standardized list that says, "Look, this is." best practice let's think through these six or seven or eight issues and roll them up into a strength of prior some something like that so in that way it's just build, build bringing some structure but the other thing that that you, you do once you've got these models with those parameters you've got situations sometimes your models all say look this this sometimes your um your assessment your reaper model says this model is definitely still good no matter what parameter value you put in here for these things. On other occasions, it says the model is definitely lost um, its the edge, no matter what the parameter value is. But there are these other occasions where your judgment really depends on what that parameter value is. And now what I love about that is then you have a conversation. It's like, oh, okay. So what was the right haircut to give this thing? If we gave it a 10% haircut, then this is uh, – I guess it depends on which way it's going to go. 10%, maybe it goes – I, i'm not gonna be able to do the math real quick but 10 percent has one conclusion a 90 percent haircut would be a very different conclusion and that focuses the conversation on this particular uncertainty and so it becomes this this is something we say in decision science that like the decision models aren't always about producing in fact they're they're usually about facilitating a conversation more than actually producing an answer so i know you give that illustration in your talk how often has that been the case in practice how often is it that these Reaper models are producing definitive answers versus raising important questions that are then debated?
1: So the tricky thing is usually if you have, usually where you see those haircuts really mattering are in models that have very short histories, both in research and in live. So these are models that you don't know very well. Mm -hmm. And that's also part of the reason why there's so much to debate um and so i think in the alternative data space we do see a decent number of those because that's really where you see those short histories and where you don't know the vendors as well and where some of the concepts are a bit newer and where there could be these biases and where you see bigger mismatches mismatches between the data you got for research and the data you got for production mm-hmm. um the good news with those is because you have the expectation that they will have a shorter lifespan. If you're overly conservative and you kill them a little bit too early, it's usually not as not as big of a mistake right. as with some of the longer term factor models that we've had for decades and might still work for decades. And if you kill it today, you might miss out on the next 10 years.
2: Right. So there's this interesting distinction between the judgment of the situation and the decision that you have to make, and that's going to depend on your assessment of false positives versus false negatives. Um, and I'm I, if the, I,
3: sorry to interrupt, yeah, but I'm kind no, of also hearing like an interesting sort of it popped in my mind, kind of like you know, in in machine learning, compute, and, and and statistics, we often think about like exploration versus. Uh, Exploration versus exploitation type of thing, like how much you want to zero in on a particular thing versus allow sort of for a greater exploration of a space of models and stuff like that. And so you might tolerate kind of something that's not necessarily performing optimally or, or, or as well as its competitors now, because, you know, a year from now or something like that, maybe that, you know, you're kind of allowing that model out there to still remain exploring while, you know, where like kind of changing circumstances or non-stationarity pushes it to be more competitive in the future?
1: So I think the way we would think about that in an ideal world, the problem in, in quant investing is that this exploration costs very real dollars and cents. Um, in an ideal world, what you could do is if you still have access to the data is you could turn off that model in terms of it live, but you could still produce those alphas every day and still monitor it. And so for things where we don't have to, you know, pay more to keep the data set around, we do do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we can confirm that we were right. Or if we start to see that we were wrong, we can revisit that and start having those conversations as well. Um,
2: One of the things that's fascinating to me is how much subjective judgment there is in this, in this quantitative trading universe, because we hear these debates all the time and and I've, and I've come to appreciate that it happens even in your world, but you know, you talk about a, a quant fund, right? And you're talking about quantitative models. And yet it's just completely wrapped up in these subjective judgments. I think, I think people don't understand how much subjectivity there is in even very quantitative approaches to decision-making because you can't, you can't, you can't run these models. You can't turn them on, turn them off without all kinds of subjective assessments, right?
1: So I think the problem is fundamentally markets are composed of people making decisions. Um, the signal, so the signal to noise ratio is not great. Nothing is stationary. There are huge regime shifts, um, and sometimes things just don't make sense. And that's it. It's, there's no other way to put it. Um, and a lot of these models that we're applying were, you know, originally designed to classify different types of irises, where there is the correct answer, and I suppose maybe there's some changes as irises evolve over time, but they're usually pretty slow. Um, and so for us, we have to take these models that were meant for decently well-behaved data and apply it to frankly some of the worst data you can get your hands on.
0: <laughs> uh, let me follow up that a lot of those models were built for IID data. Like the IRIS so, data uh, that you
1: mentioned.
0: Adi, yeah, uh, Adi, elaborate IID Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, the iris data is a very famous data data set in a a repository of data sets to to identify different types of flowers. Um, IID means independent and identically distributed. And basically the idea is that every every new observation is drawn from the same kind of distributional source as every other. And the deviations are independent of each other. So a classic assumption is free throw shots, right? Every shot is just a different shot and, and it's the same, the same person taking it, all stadiums are the same, baskets are the same heights, the distances are the same. And even though that's, there's some slight atmospheric differences, we can ignore them and think of free throws as independent and distributed. In, this, in the finance world, you have this time variable. So every data, data point is a different time. And so you have this gigantic autocorrelation structure in your data set where these models were not designed at all to, to deal with with them. So typically what you have to do is some sort of uh, figure out how to deal with that. And of course, there's a large literature uh, that's developed since, since, since the IRIS data to do that, uh, but it's rapidly developing. And, uh, and the time series component is the source of that, those blowups. Um, mm-hmm. And often what happens is that you, you, you particularly see this sort of like a mean reversion strategy where you, you see your buy low... And then you want to sell high or reverse um, when there's a lot of, of variation, um, particularly you think of like waves coming up and down and up and down. That That's a great that's like a mint if it does that forever. But if it drifts in one direction or another, right. Another, you're right, bankrupt, right. And it can it doesn't have to, it could eventually come back. Right. But if you're out of money, you're out of money. <laughs> so right, right. Um, then the game's over. And that's, of course, relates to a lot of these gambling fallacies about why the, the martingale, the double up martingale doesn't work, um, because you'll eventually run out of money. Um, and so these are the things that make these things often look good on paper. But and even when you run them for a while. But when you really see all the full fullness of the diversity of probability, they 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 can they can do things that you certainly didn't think would happen.
2: Right. It's a it's a fascinating world. And we could probably talk with you about it for a very long time, Nina. We're gonna have to let you go. But before we let you go, I wanna ask you how your personal decision making is affected by all this modeling. When you nonstationarity is something we all struggle with, you know, weekly at least, at least implicitly. And you're out there modeling it quite explicitly. Do you think you're going about your decision making any differently for the years you've spent modeling um, financial markets?
1: Oof, that's a tough one. <laughs> uh, requires maybe a little bit more self reflection than I am emotionally <laughs> prepared <were> ready- <laughs> for today. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it, w- I don't know. I like to think that I've been a type, very type A person for a very long time. Um, so I think, frankly, any deviation from expectations has always troubled me.
2: (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, that, well, look, I think you're into a fascinating world. If you need a personal lifetime challenge of dealing with uncertainty and deviations from, from expectations. It may not be coincidence that you found yourself there, Nina. Listen, <laughs> uh, thank you for taking time to be with us today. Love the work that you're doing. Hope you hear more about it down the road, but really appreciate your setting aside some time for us. Thank
1: you. Hopefully I didn't bore all the sports fans.
2: <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Nina Gededin, Associate Portfolio Manager at the Mann Group, a hedge fund. She's out in San Francisco. Those guys are based in, in, uh, in London. That has been four quarters of wharton Moneyball. two hours here on sports analytics we do it every week here on sirius xm for the whole crew shane and Adi have been with me in this last quarter for eric bradlett who's out and about doing eric things for matt Dats, the boss man appreciate all the help maddie Deion simpkins the associate boss man thank you guys for listening come back and join us next time between now and then enjoy your sports